The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I am Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And when people think of crime, particularly in a true crime podcast sense, they think of grisly killings and, and those kind of things. But there's a whole other area of white collar crime. And uh, this is a case that really caught the imagination, I think, of a whole region uh, because of just the high profile of the person's company. We're talking about Crazy Eddie, the real life Crazy Eddie. And we're talking to the author of a book about Crazy Eddie and his downfall. The book is Retail Gangster, the Insane Real Life Story of Crazy Eddie. And our guest today is the author of the book, Gary Weiss. He's been an investigative journalist and author covering corruption of Wall Street for over 40 years. His pieces have been essential reading ever since Warren Buffett cited his Business Week bond trading scandal article before Congress in 1991. Born and raised in the Bronx, Gary remains an essential New York City fixture, and we're so glad to have him with us today. Thank you for joining us to talk about Retail Gangster and Crazy Eddie. Well, it's my pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for having me. So for folks who are not from the New York area, I, I as I shared with you offline, I was tangentially familiar with Crazy Eddie, but obviously not to the depths of, of this book. Explain who and, and what Crazy Eddie was. Well, Crazy Eddie was an electronics chain. It began in the late 1960s, began 1960s, and by the 1980s, it exploded throughout the Northeast. You know, nowadays, we don't, you don't really have much in the way of electronics chains. It was a big thing, though, back in the 70s and 80s. People were, you know, buying buying stuff off the, off the shelves, stripping shelves, and Crazy Eddie was a discounter, and he presented himself on the on the air and he was best known for his screaming TV commercials where Crazy Eddie was represented by a guy named Jerry Carroll and you know you saw it all over the airwaves and it, it became nationally known. You know, you had a guy going, Air prices are insane. <laughs> you know, and it yes. was it was a big it was a, it was a major retailing phenomenon. It was mi- imitated, mimicked, it was spoofed, it was in it was in movies, it was in Saturday Night Live, it was all over the place. And what I do in my book is I describe how okay, you, know, you have this retailing phenomenon, but under the surface, it was a fraud. In various ways it was a fraud. As for the commercials, you know, it's the kind of thing people complained about, but they worked. Um, I had uh, read where people would write, I won't come into your store because of these commercials, but they could only mm. get the little cards to fill out right. in the store. So yeah. <laughs> it, it worked. No, oh, it worked. Yeah, people would line up. There would be thousands of people, literally thousands of people showing up for store openings, you know, and, and they would be showing up to get a T-shirt. And nowadays you see people go around the block, you know, sometimes to get the hottest iPhone. Right. Well, they, they line up around the, around, you know, they line up at these malls in New Jersey, thousands of people to see Jerry Carroll, to see the commercial character who's screaming at his prices are insane, and to pick up a T-shirt, a cheap T-shirt, souvenir T-shirt. Uh, so it was really, it was just an amazing uh, phenomenon, cultural phenomenon. So the Village Voice had an article on them actually in the 70s. And they said, you know, that this is a 
cultural phenomenon. You know, this is a cult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The 70s was a cult. And and I remember electronics back in that day. It was before the internet. That's what you had to go was to discount retailers and always looking for a deal. And and obviously, crazy Eddie was always willing willing to deal uh, both uh, legally and illegally. At its mm. apex, how many stores are we talking? How much revenue are we talking? Well, it had uh, oh several. I don't offhand. I don't remember, but it was forty three stores at its very peak. And it had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars wow. of revenues. You know, the amount wow. re- amount of revenues was a little shady because you know they kind of cooked the books. You know, uh, <laughs> they had hundreds of millions or maybe billions of dollars in revenues, whatever it turned out to be. But you know, by just manipulating a certain rather insignificant seeming amount of numbers, they were able to jack up their profits. Profits. It's it's an amazing. It was a quite a feat of securities for us. Now, uh, in terms of Crazy Eddie, I, I think a lot of people seeing those commercials, even though in the commercials, Jerry Carroll, who was the person who played, quote, crazy, or was the presenter, he never said he was Crazy Eddie. He always said yeah. his prices are insane, mm-hmm. but uh, people assumed he was Crazy Eddie, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. They assumed it was. I mean, to this day, people will say, oh, you know, I. They, they they confuse Crazy Eddie to this day with uh, the guy who was in the commercials, which he was not. He was just some disc jockey, yeah. very talented guy. Yeah, uh, apparently. And probably a lot of the reason this uh, this chain was so successful. So talk Absolutely. to us talk to us about the real Eddie in Crazy uh, Eddie. Who was Eddie? It? Well, the real Eddie was a guy named Eddie Anchar. Uh, born in December 1947, he was a uh, he was he was a, from a merchant family, a family that had its roots in Aleppo, Syria. It's a Jewish family, um, part of a community of Jewish people who had to flee Syria uh, uh, right after the end of the First World War. I mean, it used to be a very large Syrian Jewish community in Aleppo, Syria, in the biggest city in Syria, and now there's nothing. It's nothing, you know. Waves of persecution since then have driven them out of the city. It's a, you know, sort of a, a very mercantile community, I would say. Uh, you know, people would come to this country and open stores, and 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 Eddie was part of that tradition. His father was a merchant, so he opened the store up in um, in in uh, in 1969, uh, and he had no education. He was a high school dropout. But very, very bright. He had this native intelligence. He had this this gift for a few things. He had a gift for one of his one of the gifts that he had was for uh, you know for mer- merchandising. You know, he really knew how to sell. He was great at selling. He had his training as a salesman on Times Square. We would rip off tourists left and right. Which brings me to his other genius, which was as a as a criminal, as a thief. You know, he. He sort of graduated from being sort of a shady salesman on Times Square uh, to a major, uh, a major thief, a securities fraudster, and um, a thief in many ways, which resulted in him going to prison for some years. Now, uh, many times when you hear of corrupt business people. It'll be like a, a slippery slope, you know. At first, they'll start out yeah. totally, you know, above board, and then, you know, something happens, and they'll let one thing slide, and then they'll let two things slide, and they're like, "Oh, mm. nobody's catching me. Maybe I'll just do this intention." You know what I'm saying? It's kind of a yeah. gradual thing. But it sounds like with him, from day one, 
he pretty much said, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make a great profit. Is that correct? Yeah, it's true. There was it's that is true. Though there was a bit, I wouldn't call it necessarily a slippery slope, but you know, he did begin with small time fraud. And as he got bigger, he wound up doing bigger and bigger fraud. You know, he was up to the challenge of managing a large company and manipulating its profits, you know, after it got to be very big. But he began with smaller types of fraud, insurance fraud sales tax fraud, you know, what, what really propelled the company in its earliest years before it went public, before it went on Wall Street, uh, was uh, very sort of minor frauds, which probably were pretty common in those days among other companies. You know, among other retailers in New York City, there wasn't that much in the way of a prosecution. There was, there was a lot of insurance fraud, certainly. You, um, that's I, something that I, I think you tell do. a story about if there was water, like legitimate water damage or something. You know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Oh, and yeah. and what he, he would do it. with uh, electronics that weren't selling. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, what would happen is, you know, if there's a you no, know, there's always going to be floods and at a store in New York, you know, the roofs are old and they're flooding or whatever. So you know, you get it fixed. You go to the insurance company and it's usually insured. Well, this is what Eddie did. You know, he knows that there's going to be floods. He got the best insurance, best best insurance. You know, paying at retail uh, subs- retail price for the, for the for the merchandise. What he would do is, uh, if there was a flood, a legitimate flood, you know, he wouldn't cause it himself. There was a legitimate flood in one of his businesses. Uh, he would bring over merchandise that wasn't selling in other stores and wow. truck it on over to that store where there was the where there was the flood. And he would, you know, be sure that it got all dirty and wet and whatever. And then he'd put in the claim, not just for the legitimately damaged merchandise, but for the merchandise that he brought in from other stores. And he always used to bring, uh, you know, hoses out, you know, and, you know, make sure that everything got good and wet. And what he would do is he would recycle this merchandise. And after the merchandise got, got damaged by flooding, he'd put it in a, in, a, in a sort of a special warehouse. He'd trot it out, get it damaged again. You know, and because the, the insurance companies didn't know, they didn't care in those days. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so he would, he, they call that spiking the claim. Spiking the claim. So, in other words, he was defrauding the insurance companies, and oh, yeah. then he was defrauding his customers by selling them essentially damaged goods. Well, he wouldn't sell them damaged goods. Uh, the, flooded goods no, no, the flooded goods were just used for insurance fraud purposes. okay he wouldn't okay. actually sell okay. them you know, he would do it but he would just bring it back what now he did t- take advantage of his customers in other ways oh yes oh yes he did in other ways several other ways um what were one of them? give give us a for instance well, one of the more nefarious instance. ones well here's one you know when you return merchandise that merchandise should not be sold you know you you, you don't like this merchandise or maybe there's something wrong with you you return it. Well, Eddie used to take this merchandise that was returned by customers. He'd repackage it. His people would repackage it, and they'd put it out again to sell it. Now, this may not seem like a very big deal, I mean, you know, but it is. You're not supposed to buy right. uh, used merchandise, and, you know, he would do this with stuff. He would do this with um, with products that he wasn't, um, that wasn't, um, yeah, he would do this with, he'd advertise products, and, you know, when he'd run out, uh, of products that were advertised, advertised specials. He'd he'd go. Uh, he, he'd he'd have the customers go and and sell them. He'd have his people sell the uh, 
used uh, merchandise. I would say, though, that his biggest fraud on the customers was this whole concept of lowest prices. Because they weren't necessarily lowest. In order to get the lowest prices, you really had a bargain with him. Okay. So he'd say, our prices are insane. Well, they weren't necessarily insane. They sometimes <laughs> were higher than his than other than his competitors, but you really had to go to a lot of work. 90% of customers don't want to bargain. You know, in America, you know, this isn't Turkey, you know, where people are bargaining all the time. You know, right. I'm living in Egypt. You know, right. people don't don't bargain much. They go in and say, here, I'm gonna buy this. Oh, here, this is the price. Okay, that's why. But if you like, you know, if you're like some people like my grandfather. I would go in and hello, I want better price. Give it. This is very rare among American customers. So the majority, of, so they had a reputation for the lowest prices without actually executing on that promise. And then, as I mentioned in the book, they would do other things that disadvantage their customers, like charging sales tax but not passing it on to the government. Now, that's uh, tax fraud. That's so, so they, they got have, away with it. They had people bought. paying cash, so they couldn't track it, right? Yeah, for the most part, up until and this, they stopped doing this after they got to be really big. They were having people pay cash. You know, you couldn't pay by credit card. Um, so uh, they they would collect the sales tax, and most of the time, most of the time, they wouldn't they wouldn't pay pay the government the sales tax. Now, this gave them an sort of a, a profit margin, a, a sort of a, a built in profit margin, because you know, even in the nineteen sixties, seventies, you know, sales tax in in New York City was like seven or eight percent. Yeah, so it was quite it was <laughs> that's, that's a big difference. Yeah, yeah. So, so this enabled them to advertise that they were selling a certain product at uh, practically cost, you know. Per, yeah, but you know, they, it wasn't really cost because they had this built-in buffer from collecting sales tax and not passing it on. And then he would even get. Uh, I, I read uh, maybe in the early days he would uh, because didn't you have to be an official dealer to get the best pricing oh, or something? But he pulled tricks getting his merchandise from other sources, so to speak. Yeah. Well, his uh, you know his whole appeal to, uh, to the customer was you know all the brand names Sony, Panasonic, all the brand names you know the, the biggest brands. Well, they didn't want to sell them, and in the early days, the very early days. They were permitted to set the prices. You know, they were pigs. You know, the early, you know, there was a law in those days. They called them the fair trade laws. They were really sort of a web of, of state laws that were permitted, they were legal, uh, that allowed manufacturers to set the prices of what they were selling down the line, down the, to, to, to retailers. They called it vertical price fixing, as a matter um, So, Eddie found it, so they wouldn't sell to him. Early on, they wouldn't sell to him because he was a discounter. They didn't want to sell to discounter. And that's all. What they used to do was uh, Eddie would buy from um, shady sources. He bought some one of his earlier sources uh, was a numbers bank in the Bronx, a rather large numbers bank that happened to have an electronics store. You know, they happened to have this electronics store, whether they was involved in the numbers ring. No, no, no. might have been. Uh, but they would buy from this numbers banker in the Bronx. Um, and they would buy from other retail outlets. You know, they they would they would buy uh, merchandise at just a little bit above wholesale, and then they'd use their trickery, their sales tax uh, thievery, to be able to advertise that they had the lowest prices. Now, some people might say something like this, and I want to get your take on it. Like a Madoff, mm-hmm. we we can see that and say, oh, he you know he harmed people, he took their money, and so forth. But somebody might say about some 
some something about someone like Crazy Eddie. Okay, it's not the best thing in the world. I mean, it's not a good thing that he um, he cheated sales tax and maybe charged people a little more than he should, and maybe he committed an insurance fraud. But in the big scheme of things. We're talking about mainly big corporations that lost money. Maybe somebody bought a, you know, uh, a few bucks on buying an eight-track player in 1974 or something, you know. But in a way, it's almost like a victimless crime. Uh, mm-hmm. What would you, what would you say to someone who feels, eh, it's not a Madoff. It's, it's, it's no big thing. It's the way business used to be done. Well, I'll tell you, uh, he certainly didn't round up customers into his stores and machined on them. You know, he wasn't that type of criminal. Uh, he he committed crimes that what you call white collar white collar crimes. And and you know, yeah, sure, he he was he was engaged. Uh, some of his earliest frauds entirely were you know selling uh, uh, you know you know selling collecting. Sales tax, cheating the government, cheating insurance companies. They all care whether the you know the insurance companies are cheated. Nobody likes the insurance company. Now later on, he graduated to to insider trading. Mm, he, was, he was committing yeah. fraud. He was committing fraud, and he was selling stock heavily, heavily into the market. And that's where he made most of his money, which was in insider trading. So the question that you want to ask yourself as well. Is insider trading all that bad? Then you get down to the sort of existential question where he made money was in insider trading. Is insider trading a bad thing? And then maybe you believe it isn't. Maybe you think it is. There are worse things in insider trading, as I was saying, you know, rounding up people in the stores and gassing them or whatever. The hell. That's worse than insider trading, but insider trading is bad. Insider trading is, is, is a form of stealing. Who do you steal from an insider trading? Well, you steal from other people who were involved who were involved in the market. It's a fraud on the market. That type of fraud is definitely not quite the same kind of fraud as Madoff just took, you know, just took money right. for people and didn't give it back. So yeah, you know, I think people who are, who are raising those points, well, Hard to argue with the fact that no, it's not, and I, I'm not going to sit here and and, and 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 get blue in the face, screaming about insider <laughs> trading. But nevertheless, it is what it is. Well, I mean, if I owned an electronic store, I wouldn't be very successful in that era because I would have played mm-hmm. it straight by the book. I mean, I I don't yeah. believe in stealing, whether it's through a big company or it's an individual. But um, I, I just wanted to throw that out there because I can sure, see some sure. people saying and, that. And and you know, another ahead. thing that you got to keep in mind is that in those days. It was certain types of, of the things that Eddie was doing. Um, well, for instance, you know, later on he stopped sealing sales tax because you know he was involved. You know, he got to be very big. He was stopped sealing sealing sales tax. But his people believed, and they were probably right, that his competitors, his latest, his newest competitors, were stealing sales right. tax. Right. So there, some of the things that, that he did, and then, of course, insurance fraud was very common. When the the Bronx was burning at the time, and landlords were putting were burning you know, you know were were burning their their buildings and putting in for insurance claims. So you know that that was insurance fraud too. There was a lot of that going on. Was it a good thing? I don't think so. Um, I would agree. Um, the, the, the other thing I would say about insider trading is people think again, big institutional training, uh, trade, uh, big institutional traders, they're getting hurt. So what, but think about that 401ks, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe someone was getting ready for retirement and, and said, okay, I'm going to put 10,000 or $20,000 in crazy Eddie stock because this company's going nothing but up. And 
They do that because the stock has been manipulated and uh, they have this perception they're going to make a big big money and then they lose everything. So, I, I mean, and, and, and I don't buy the intellectual argument that, you know, it's okay to steal if it's from a big corporation, but some people do. Uh, yeah. So, but I'm saying that you have to remember something like insider trading can involve people from the small individual investor up to the big uh, corporate investors. So you can't, sure. I don't think you can use that argument to justify insider trading. Yeah. yeah. To me, what made it this story interesting was the people involved. I mean, less as a, as a case of, you know, crime and punish, crime and, and punishment. It was, it was, a, it was an interesting story for the people. And, uh, if you look at in terms of victims, you know the the people. Interestingly enough, to get to this point, and you raise an excellent question. The people who Eddie victimized the most were the people closest to him. Mm-hmm. His wife. <laughs> I mean, his brothers. He victimized. He victimized family. And, you know, the the closer you got to him, the more likely you were to become either an accessory to his crimes or a victim of Eddie personally you know one of the most one of the, one of the biggest characters in the, in, the, in in the book was his cousin Sam mm-hmm. who uh, was completely screwed over by Eddie and became the principal witness against him you know it's a family business keep in mind and the family that steals together stays together and if you you know if you're prosecuted you have got to keep the family together but like the Corleone family yeah yeah and you know, i mean it, 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 and they're going to, you know, you keep your friends close, your enemies closer, that sort of thing. Right. You know, well, you didn't do that. And they, they turned on him. Well, his Boy, father, his father went against him in a big way, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sam M. Antar, quite a character, died some years ago. Sam M. really, really was strange. Yeah, he, he yeah, he, he went, he wanted to take over the business, you know, like, it was like, you know, he he conspired with Eddie's estranged wife to take over the business. Didn't work. Um, couldn't get get his ducks in a row. Uh, and then after Eddie went to went to prison, he completely changed and he became Eddie's biggest advocate. He just went back and forth. Yeah, interesting. And uh, it, it was interesting. He had, if I remember correctly, Eddie had a wife, Debbie, and then a mistress, Debbie, Debbie too. Debbie too. Well, which kind of indicates like his, I don't know. It seems like to me somebody that could be that callous to to to, to name your mistress Debbie too. It just almost is yeah. like a car or something. It's like an object, you know. How people have the vanity yeah. plates and they'll have Eddie one, Eddie two, Eddie three. It's almost like uh, you know, a significant other is just like another object, just like another co- a car, or another boat, or whatever. Yeah, well, he had two, he had, you know, he seemed to like women named Debbie, you know, he was openly, he openly cheated on Debbie one, you know, completely cheated. And uh, there was this big, messy legal battle. The woman was completely screwed over. She didn't get a nickel. She was suing people involved in that. And the lawsuit, her litigation against Eddie's successors, my God, it is still active as of a few years ago. Wow. After 40 years. So what was, I mean, was he just, it seems like there was no redeeming quality to him. He was just a bad, bad guy. Well, he did a lot of bad things. I mean, for instance, one of the things he did, you know, after the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know what, hit the fan, he fled to Israel. So what did he do in Israel? One of the first things he did, okay, he commi- he, he became a citizen of Israel. Which you can do, and a citizen of Israel, why? He created an alias. 
He made his alias a citizen of Israel. So, you know, you're talking about victims. What's one of his victims? The Israeli government. Because he made, he he he, he was able, he got, a, an, a, he got an anonymous, he got a phony identity to be citizen of Israel, say so he could flee. Now, this was a huge embarrassment for the Israeli government. They wanted to get rid of him. You know, he had, you know, so again, it was like the same principle of, you know, if you're closer you are to him, more likely you to become a, 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 you know, a, a victim. So he got to be, Citizenship of Israel. So, who became a, a victim? Israel. What was the relationship between him and Jerry Carroll? Because I think this is so interesting. Again, mm. and I also want to ask, what did you know? What did Jerry Carroll have to say after the you know what hit the fan? Because yeah. the thing is, is that it's almost like he was. I'm guessing he was probably blamed. <laughs> to some degree for Eddie's crimes. So if you wow. could talk to us about the relationship and also if there was any blowback yeah. uh, to Carol after all this uh, came to came to light. Yeah, there really was no uh, no real blowback for for Carol, you know. I mean in in reality after all he was just a just the guy yeah, on TV. Like he wasn't yeah. a crook, he just played one on TV. <laughs> was, you know, it was very popular. I don't think there was any 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 blog back to the guy. His oh, relationship good. with Eddie was, you know, they were friends. They were they were actually they were actually quite friendly. I unfortunately did not have the opportunity to talk to Jerry Carroll because he passed away. You know, the interesting thing about Jerry, you know, he was a um, in his personality, in his private life, he was a very private person. He didn't uh, he didn't like to talk to people. Um, and as a matter of fact, he was such a sort of a reclusive individual that when he died, he died in twenty twenty. He didn't tell anybody. You know, I talked to a lot of people for this who were friends of it, and they said, oh, I don't know where he is. And he didn't tell it as the closest friends when he died in 2020. He just died. There was no funeral. There was no nothing. He just, no, no, no death notice. He just, you know, he died quietly. So you didn't tell anybody he was ill before he passed tell. or anything like that? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and yet iconic figure. Now, here's a question for you, because I always wonder about this. Mm-hmm. When you talk about these white collar crimes, I mean, uh, over time, everything is so computerized and so cross referenced, and all of that. And certainly in his later years of working, some of that started to come into play. But could Crazy Eddie have done this uh, now? If he were starting out now, or are the cross checks just too good, or could he do something on the same order that he did back uh, starting back in the seventies? I would say he probably could, to a large extent, do what he was doing back in the seventies. That certain things have changed. For instance, uh, I think the insurance companies are a little more careful nowadays who they mm-hmm. sell insurance to. I think they now have a database. It would have been hard for him to carry out. In order for him to carry out his insurance fraud, he would have had to, you know, he used to go from one insurance company to another insurance company. They didn't really compare notes. Now they do. That would have been hard. His biggest fraud as a corporate fraudster, there were two types of fraud that he did. He did accounting fraud where he inflated the value of stuff in his in his warehouses. And then there was insider trading that, that sort of went off of that. He could do that today. Absolutely. Um, he could definitely inflate his warehouses. People do that to this day. They inflate their warehouses in order to inflate their profits. Um, people engage in insider trading just the way they did in his day. Selling, uh, you know, cheating the, um, 
uh, the government out of uh, out of sales tax. Uh, that's harder purely because people nowadays use credit cards. They don't really want to pay cash, but that people people actually steal sales tax to this day. I'm I'm sure you don't get it. It's not prosecuted very often, but it does happen. So I would say the the major elements of what he did, despite the internet, despite everything, the major elements of what he did, he could do, but he couldn't do it in consumer electronics because that's all gold and online, and that's just right. Just, that's no longer right. But he would, I mean, he strikes me as the kind of guy, and there's people like this in business, and a lot of people are like this in business, even legitimate sure. people. They don't really care what they sell. They right. sell anything. Um, and then a lot of times you see him go from crypto to this to that to the new shiny Absolutely. thing. You know, that now Absolutely. they're going to be hawking the latest version of AI. You know, I've came up with this new version of AI or whatever. You know, whatever the hot uh -huh. thing is, they're going to go for. I mean, at that time, consumer electronics is exploding so probably today he would just find another business that would work for him it didn't Absolutely. really probably matter to him what he sold sure sure i mean the only reason he went into consumer electronics because it was the hottest thing out there really that was that was it yep you know. yep absolutely so i mean are there any lessons to be learned or is just a story of uh, one bad guy or is there anything we can take from this well, I think, you know, you can take from any story like this a sort of a sense of, uh, you know, the frailty of the human condition, perhaps, you know, and uh, how people are willing to believe anything. You know, it, one of the, um, I don't know if you could call them victims, really, you know, of any answer, were the securities analysts. You know, he bamboozled Wall Street. He did a fabulous job of bamboozling, of, of swindling and, and, and gulling. Two of the watchdogs that are supposed to know better. One was the securities analysts who to this day are used to sell stocks. You know, you want to buy a stock, you read something by some brokerage firm, they produce research. They, he, they used to completely pull the wool over eyes of, of analysts who, who just believed everything they were told, completely gullible. And he also pulled the wool over eyes of the press. Now, the press I can kind of forgive because, you know, the press couldn't exactly investigate right you, know, you couldn't exactly find out how much of a fraud eddie was by just interviewing or whatever it would have been almost Im impossible but he did a wonderful job of gulling the press and gulling the securities frauds uh, the, the, the securities uh analysts and the auditors they definitely should have known better the auditors and um and the, the regulators you know up to the very last minute they did not really have Eddie in his crosshairs. As a matter of fact, when an informant did come out of the family, you know, Sam's cousin, Eddie, Sammy, mm -hmm. who he had cheated, finally went to prosecutors and said, look, I got all the information here. Here you go. I got all this information. Here's crazy Eddie. They stink. This is the real story. They said, wait a second. We got a couple of other guys. Even the, even the, 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 the feds who ultimately nailed Eddie, they were on the verge of not nailing him because a couple of, of sort of like phony types, uh, guys who were trying to s uh, sort of uh, save their skin, who didn't really know very much, they had come to Eddie and had their own narrative that they wanted to sell, which wasn't quite accurate. And they were believed initially by the SEC and by federal prosecutors. So Eddie almost wasn't even prosecuted 
in in a, in a substantive sense because of the uh, um, uh, because of the failures of the regulators. So I guess you could look upon it as sort of a cautionary tale of everything ultimately kind of going right, but almost going wrong. It's interesting. I think about the parallels between somebody talking about could it happen today? It has happened today. Look at Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, yeah. And the part about the media is very interesting to me is that, you know, Jerry, uh, not Jerry, excuse me, Eddie had a great story, had a great story. You know, he has this kind of boisterous ad campaign, you know, everything must go at low prices. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, he lived large, I'm guessing. So, and it came from an immigrant family, a great American story about somebody pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and sure. making this retail giant. I could just, you know, I could almost picture in my mind, I haven't read them, but the profiles that were probably in the periodicals of the day. Oh, yeah. And we still fall for that. You know, Elizabeth Holmes, convicted of fraud, but what a great story she was. This young woman who comes, you know, bursts onto the scene and has this great vision for this uh, uh, this uh, this device that will do this blood test that will revolutionize healthcare. And it was all castles on clouds. Man. But we wanted to believe it. We wanted to believe it. And it, it, it goes back all the way to, was it Barnum? It was it Barnum that said there's a sucker born every minute? It goes yeah. all the way back. And before that, well, many of us, me included, will fall for a good story. Oh, yeah. The press is very vulnerable to people like Eddie Antar or Elizabeth Holmes. As a matter of fact, just a week or two ago, the New York Times made a big puff piece on this woman. If they're still, she's still manipulating the press. And I'm sure that if Eddie Antar could come back to life, he would still be able to manipulate the press. I'm sure he would. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, the press has a reputation for being, you know, anti-business, anti But the press is a sucker for a, for a, for a billionaire, you know. They're, they're, they're suckers for, for the story of, a, of, a, of an entrepreneur. They're really, they're suckers, particularly the financial press, but also the regular press, too. Yeah. They're suckers for the yeah. Eddie Antars. Yeah, now I find myself, every time I read a story like that, it's like, yeah, but. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, I never. So don't buy stock based on a uh, a puff piece in, in one of the big magazines or newspapers. Oh, yeah. uh, or oh you got to watch sites. that, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, the question is, and I think it's pretty much everywhere fine books are sold, where can people find Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie? And you mean this? That's, uh, well, that's and more about all your work. Well, you can pick it up on Amazon. You can pick it up at Barnes & Noble. You can pick it up at your, at your independent bookstore. Support your independent bookstore, please. Uh, go to your local store. It's sold wherever books are sold. Uh, sold. You know, if it's not available at your local bookstore, have them order it. Oh, the monitor. It's available. That's how I found out about it. I was walking through my local bookstore and I saw it and I said, that is something that we need to do a show on. And I'm yeah, so glad that we did. I hope everybody checks out Retail Gangster, the insane real life story of Crazy Eddie. It is a great book and we've had a great time with Gary Wise. Gary, thank you for joining us today on the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. I love talking to you.
Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Indeed, that was the story of Eddie Antar, Crazy Eddie. And we thank Gary Weiss for joining us. It was a fascinating discussion. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you like this show, please make sure to follow it on the podcast platform of your choice. And please tell a friend today, really, we need to get the word out about this show. Uh, again, it's one of those shows that's kind of on the borderline. Is this something we're going to continue or not? Honestly, I want to continue it. I enjoy this. It's a, a nice palate cleanser from the paranormal stuff and just gets me to, it gives me a chance to exercise a different interviewing muscle. So I really like doing it, and I'm fascinated by the subjects and the guests like we had today. So uh, please um, share it with your friends and also make sure you follow or subscribe in that podcast app. We thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. And as always, be careful out there. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>